0: Hello and welcome to A Baha'i Conversation. My name is Anthony Naimi. And I'm Michael Sabat. We started A Baha'i Conversation as a way to enrich our own understanding of the Baha'i writings, to share some of the insights from those writings, and hopefully to spark further Baha'i conversations. In each episode, we look at a particular dimension of the
1: teachings of the Baha'i Faith, explore how it relates to ideas and society at large, and discuss how it might serve the needs of humanity today.
0: In this episode, we're going to take a closer look at the principle of the Baha'i Faith that we briefly touched upon in our last episode, the oneness of religion. Our discussion today will take the form of a conversation between two friends. While the conversation is imaginary, it's based on other conversations we've had over the years with many friends, and centers around some of the questions that often come up when we think about what the oneness of religion means. We'll set the stage for the conversation with a brief analogy that foreshadows some of the points to be raised
1: religion is the outer expression of the divine reality therefore it must be living vitalized moving and progressive if it be without motion and non-progressive it is without the divine life it is dead
0: abdul baha Imagine that you and a friend are standing inside a cathedral. You're looking at one of the side walls. The wall is ornamented by a row of stained glass windows. It's very early in the morning and no light is coming in yet from outside. So the windows are too dark for you to really make them out. Then, slowly, the window at the eastern end of the wall starts to glow. You both walk over to stand in front of it, drawn by the light. The morning sun is now shining right behind this window, lighting up every pane of colored glass in a dazzling display. You look in awe at the beauty of the image that's revealed to you. You and your friend are both captivated by the story the window tells, by the intricacy of the craftsmanship, by the bright colors that seem to dance before you. Then, slowly, almost imperceptibly, the light behind the window starts to dim. It doesn't fade entirely but the sun is tracing its arc across the sky and now it's no longer directly behind your window it has moved on to the one beside you which in its turn has been dazzlingly lit up soon enough the sun will move on again and it will be a new window's turn to be illumined now you can still see the marvelous shapes the beautiful story set out in the first stained glass window after all the sun is still up and its light touches everything, some of it's getting through. Your friend stays where they are, still gazing at this first window. You walk to the next window and look out. You are following the sun.
1: So, Anthony, yesterday you said something that got me thinking. You told me that Baha'is believe that all of the great religions of the world, despite their differences, are fundamentally one. You also talked about how Baha'is work to build unity between religions. So I've been thinking about that, and I think I see what you mean.
0: Oh, tell me.
1: Well, I remember taking an intro to sociology class where they told us that religions end up being roughly the same because people create them to solve similar problems. So the similarities between people across different societies mean that they are going to come up with religious systems that are also similar. Is that the Baha'i idea?
0: Well, Baha'is would agree that to a certain extent humans have faced similar problems throughout history. But if the idea is that ordinary human beings create or invent religion to solve these problems, then no, that's not the Baha'i idea. We believe the same thing that Christians, Muslims, and other religious people believe, which is that our faith actually conveys something of a higher truth. So it's not a man-made system. For Baha'is, religion, in the sense of the inner essence of the spiritual teachings, comes from God.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, So Baha'is think all religions come from God. Okay, so to build unity between religions, do you take parts from all the religions and combine them?
0: Uh, Sort of like a buffet approach, taking a little from this religion and a little from that religion. You know, this is actually a perception that many people have of the Baha'i faith when they first hear about it. They sometimes think it doesn't really bring anything to the table itself, and instead just draws on practices, scriptures, and so on from other faiths. This is not at all the case. Just like the other great world religions, the Baha'i faith centers on teaching sent by God to humanity, at a specific time and in a specific place. These teachings are found in the writings of Baha'u'llah, the manifestation of God who founded the Baha'i faith.
1: I see. Okay, so then I'm not, I'm not sure that I understand what Baha'is mean by saying religions are one. Because, I mean, you realize mo- many religious people would disagree. In fact, some of them will very honestly tell you that only their religion is true, and the rest are all false.
0: Yeah, that's a sort of exclusivist objection to the idea of the oneness of religion.
1: Yes, uh, and, you know, sometimes it's a bit more moderate. So I have a friend who says that she thinks her religion is the most, uh, I guess she says the most pure or the most true, and that others may have been divinely inspired, but they've lost their way over time. But on the other hand, I also have a couple of friends who say outright that only their religion is inspired by God, or has any relation to truth at all.
0: So what do you think about those ideas? (laughs)
1: Well, it's funny. I'm almost on the opposite extreme. I kind of worry that maybe the problem with saying religions are one is that it could be almost, uh, I don't know, oppressive? Like, all religions are different, and their differences are beautiful, and they should be respected for their differences. We don't want to oversimplify them or reduce them to being the same thing. Because I kind of feel like I can believe in all of them to some extent, and I don't need to worry too much about their differences does this oneness idea ask them to become the same?
0: So that's a great question. So maybe for simplicity's sake, you could say that you don't have an exclusivist view of religion at all. You have a very relativistic view of religion. Yeah, I think that would fairly describe my my view. Well, maybe to clarify what the Baha'i idea of the oneness of religion means, it would help to look at what we mean by religion. As I understand it, When the Baha'i faith says that religion is one, religion here means the inner essence of the spiritual teachings, not the form of the teachings. That inner essence, Baha'is believe, reflects objective spiritual reality. Abdu'l-Baha suggests that it is impossible to establish the oneness of religion on the basis of the variety of religious forms just as focusing on the differences between people is an unpromising start for establishing the oneness of humanity. So each religious community has developed its own system of thinking, its own practices, languages, terminology, assumptions, its own standards, and these can present an insuperable barrier to recognizing oneness. It can be so difficult to see past these differences that for all intents and purposes, the religions can seem totally incommensurable at best saying different things, and at worst, not even speaking the same language. So the solution that Abdu'l-Bahá offers is to move beyond the forms of the religion, holding fast to the principle that truth is one and does not admit multiplicity. So Abdu'l-Bahá suggests that we have to focus on the underlying oneness and unity of the religions. He says, for example, reality or truth is one, Yet there are many religious beliefs, denominations, creeds, and differing opinions in the world today. Why should these differences exist? Because they do not investigate and examine the fundamental unity which is one and unchangeable. If they seek reality itself, they will agree and be united, for reality is indivisible and not multiple. It is evident, therefore, that there is nothing of greater importance to mankind than the investigation of truth.
1: Hmm, okay. I think I can kind of see that. But then, when you talk about the form of a religion and its essence, uh, how do we tell the difference? What is the essence
0: of a religion? That's a great question. It might be easier to start thinking about what we mean by the form of religion. I think that the outer form of a religion includes maybe two things, and we can think of them as two layers. So you know that in the Baha'i understanding, God sends manifestations of God, figures who are sometimes referred to as messengers or prophets in different religions, who bring a message to humanity. Sometimes when we talk about religion, We're really talking about the system that was developed by people who interpreted the message that they received, and on the basis of their interpretations, they constructed a framework of teachings and beliefs, practices, rituals, and customs that had various degrees of connection to the original message. To use a somewhat flippant analogy, like if the manifestation's original words are the book, say, Lord of the Rings, the religions that spring up are various film adaptations and merchandising. (laughs)
1: or uh, maybe even whole other franchises that take the words and concepts from Lord of the Rings, uh, like how every fantasy series talks about elves, dwarves, and orcs.
0: Sure. Now, some of this adaptation and expansion is done very lovingly, with an attempt to be fully faithful to that source material, but it all necessarily is the work of some mind or minds that are not the mind of the original author, So it's not the essence of religion, about which Abdu'l-Bahá says this, "...religion is not a series of beliefs, a set of customs. Religion is the teachings of the Lord God, teachings which constitute the very life of humankind, which urge high thoughts upon the mind, refine the character, and lay the groundwork for man's everlasting honor." So these frameworks that people develop around the original message can be very beautiful, powerful, and useful, and they certainly contain major elements of truth. But often they represent a thick layer of human interpretation that's superimposed on and can come to obscure the divine teachings. This is what Abdu'l-Baha refers to as, quote, imitations of ancestral religious forms. He says this, if we reflect upon it, we will find that establishing the divine religions has been the greatest means toward accomplishing the good oneness of humanity. The foundation of divine reality in religion has done this, not imitations of ancestral religious forms. Imitations are opposed to each other and have ever been the cause of strife, enmity, and jealousy and war. So, what does this imply? From a Baha'i perspective, it means that the various historically developed religious systems do not deserve to be prioritized above the oneness of truth, no matter how beautiful, noble, and true they are in their own right. In fact, these systems can actually become a cause of disunity.
1: Okay, I think I see what you're saying. Uh, So if I try to relate this to my own family's background in Christianity, um, so I think Christianity is the religion with the largest number of adherents in the world today, but it's divided into, well, more divisions and sects than you could count. Each of these groups defines themselves by some practice or belief, or even sometimes language, that sets them apart from other Christian groups. And I suppose that unless I believe that one of these sects has preserved the original pristine form of Christianity, then I have to accept that each of them is different from the others because of some added feature that's been created by people.
0: Right, and that's not necessarily a criticism. There may have been excellent reasons at the time for the people in that group to add or change something about their practice or belief. However, it has undeniably also led to conflict and estrangement between Christians, even violence at times. And yet we would probably agree that all of them are in some sense one, the sense being the way in which they're all rooted in Christ,
1: Okay, well, I think that makes sense in terms of what the form of a religion is. Uh, So, sure, maybe when Christians look past their denominations, specific practices, or beliefs, then they can be united. Uh, But I don't really see how it helps show that religions are all one. Because across religions, there are much more fundamental differences. Like the differences in, uh, well, what prophet they believe in, or what book they think is divinely inspired.
0: Right. So this gets at the second thing included in the idea of the form of the religion. Think of this as another layer of form. It's deeper than the one we just talked about, but it's still not the essence. So to understand this layer of form and how it relates to the essence of religion, I can share another quotation from Abdu'l-Bahá. He explained this using a clear and beautiful metaphor in a talk in New York in 1912. Here, I can pull it up on my phone. Do you want to read this? Sure.
1: Likewise, the divine religions of the holy manifestations of God are in reality one, though in name and nomenclature they differ. Man must be a lover of the light, no matter from what dayspring it may appear. He must be a lover of the rose, no matter in what soil it may be growing. He must be a seeker of truth, no matter from what source it come. Attachment to the lantern is not loving the light.
0: And it continues a little later on here.
1: Uh, okay. Uh, so it says, If we are lovers of the light, we adore it in whatever lamp it may become manifest. But if we love the lamp itself and the light is transferred to another lamp, we will neither accept nor sanction it. Therefore, we must follow and adore the virtues revealed in the messengers of God, whether in Abraham, Moses, Jesus, or other prophets. But we must not adhere to and adore the lamp. We must recognize the sun, no matter from what dawning point it may shine forth, be it mosaic, Abrahamic, or any personal point of orientation, whatever. For we are lovers of sunlight and not of orientation. We are lovers of illumination and not of lamps and candles.
0: Okay, so here I think Abdu'l-Bahá is using the image of the light and the lamp to distinguish between the essence and the form of religion, and the lamp— The form that embodies the essence and through which it shines isn't just the human-made part of religion. A lot of the original, revealed teachings of the religion can also be the lamp. When looking between religions, between Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, and the Baha'i Faith, and so on, we see different forms for prayer or fasting, certain social teachings or rules about diet that are different, Even the languages and images used to tell us something about spiritual reality differs. Now, in the Baha'i view, these parts of the original teaching were of great importance when they were revealed to humanity. But they were important because they were the best way at the time to move humanity forward from where it was, move it closer to God and move civilization forward. These teachings look different between religions, because what God prescribes to move us forward will necessarily depend on where we are at any given point. Bahá'u'lláh puts it this way, The all-knowing physician hath his finger on the pulse of mankind. He perceiveth the disease, and prescribeth, in his unerring wisdom, the remedy. Every age hath its own problem, and every soul its particular aspiration. The remedy the world needeth in its present-day afflictions can never be the same as that which a subsequent age may require. Be anxiously concerned with the needs of the age ye live in, and center your deliberations on its exigencies and requirements.
1: Okay, so let me see if I understand. Uh, He's saying that the prophet or manifestation of God is like a doctor. And whatever he says or writes is a prescription for that specific time and place. So it won't be the same as what another doctor prescribes in a different time and place. But it also is the same in a certain sense because it's all true medicine and it all helps promote health. Is that is that basically it?
0: Yep, that's how I understand it. And if we think about the manifestations as doctors, we can see that even the different names and human personalities of the manifestations can be part of the form of religion. They're different. Moses speaks a different language, lives at a different time and eats different food than the Buddha or Baha'u'llah. But just like when we're in a new city and we get sick, we'll go to see a doctor just based on their medical credentials. We don't need her to be the exact same doctor that we know from back home.
1: Okay, this this makes sense so far. I think I'm beginning to get an idea of what the form of a religion is and why it's not essential. Uh, And I do think this is actually quite helpful in responding to some kinds of fundamentalism. It makes me think that when somebody is too, uh, yeah, fundamentalist, I think you could say, about their religion, uh, like maybe they think that the only way to worship is exactly the specific way that their group does it. And that even other people in their religion who don't have the exact same rituals or whatever are wrong. If people are doing this, then what they're doing is they're mistaking the form for the essence, but the form is just the lamp. But then when we think about the essence, I'm still a bit confused. I I don't know what the essence of religion is, because if even the original teachings of the religion are part of the form, well, yeah, how do we even tell what the essence is?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great question. Maybe before answering it, we can think about just how big a problem this is. So if we have to move beyond the forms of the religions to see the underlying unity, through a process of investigation that puts aside any inclination or affection for one form, as Abdu'l-Bahá says, holds fast to the light in whatever lamp it may appear, this might be more complicated than it seems. One of the complications that arises in this process is the recognition that maybe we don't have access to the essence of religion, that our understanding of the underlying reality of the religions is necessarily partial, limited and relative.
1: So in, uh, in one of my courses, I learned about Immanuel Kant, who I think talks about this, uh, this very problem. As if I'm recalling correctly, he says that humans never have access to the essence of anything. He calls it the thing in itself. Uh, we're always just dealing with the impression that something leaves on our senses. So with religion, or anything else for that matter, we can only think in terms of forms the way we've been talking about it. We can't really receive uh, an essence of anything, at least not intellectually. So that's, that's where I come back to this relativist approach to religion It kind of makes sense to me. Since the truth or essence of the religion can't be accessed, then why can't we just choose whichever form that we like? Or, for that matter, why not just get rid of the form entirely, so maybe I don't have a formal religion, I just connect to the spirit however I I feel I can. Why do we have all this emphasis on moving past the forms, which are really well-developed and which already claim the hearts and minds of millions of people around the world? And, I guess, kind of along the same lines, why do we need a new religion like the Baha'i faith? The spiritual landscape of the world is already uh, arguably complicated enough, why do we need yet another story about the nature of spiritual reality. And I'm not trying to say you're wrong, and I hope this isn't um, um, offensive. I'm, I'm just curious how Baha'is think about these questions.
0: No problem, this is great. It's really helpful for me too, to think about these things. So, okay, let's try this analogy. Do you remember learning about the atom in high school?
1: Uh, yeah, sure.
0: If you think back to the first pictures or models of the atom that you remember, what were they like? <laughs>
1: well, I remember it kept changing. Uh, let me think. Okay, I think the first the, yeah, the first one we learned was called the Rutherford model. Uh, so that's the one where you've got uh, a nucleus in the middle, and then the electrons look like these little balls that are circling around in overlapping orbits. Um, it looked a bit like a solar system, I guess.
0: And did you later learn different models?
1: Uh, yeah, so the next one... Oh, yes. Yeah, so the next one was called the Bohr model, and I think each of them was kind of named for the person who developed it. And they, we were sort of taught them in the same order that they were historically developed, I think we were told. Right. So, OK, uh, the Bohr model, that was like um, a cloud of, I guess, energy states. So the electrons at, in this model, they can only be in specific orbits and those represent different amounts of energy. Uh, and they can only jump from one level to another. They could be in between. But then I remember later, there was the other model. I don't remember what it was called, but in this one, this one was weird. It's like there's an underlying quantum field everywhere in the universe, and each electron particle, or what we think of as a particle, it's just, a, it's just like a spike in that field. It's, it's not really an object at all. I never even knew how to visualize that one.
0: Right. So in successive years of science education, our picture of the atom was progressively complexified. Now, if you think about it, all of these models of the atom are, in a very real sense, false. They don't give us access to the essence of the atom, the thing in itself. And yet, at the same time, each of them is enough of an approximation to the truth of the essence that it can be useful. So the models can be meaningfully said to be true. They have a real connection to truth. And the more refined models are more useful in that they allow us to make more accurate predictions about reality, which we can even harness into technological developments. This analogy to the use of models in describing physical reality shares some of the challenges that also face us in the realm of religion and spiritual reality. As seekers of truth in either field, we're in a very delicate position. We have to walk a tightrope, so to speak. On the one hand, we have the responsibility of never taking the model, whether the model of the atom or the form of a particular religion, as the thing itself. On the other hand, we also have to realize that we depend on form, and that it's our responsibility to investigate and be ready to recognize new models, new forms, when they better serve the needs of our time. When scientists understand that their models of physical reality are just that—models which are useful because they correspond in some way to reality without being absolutely true—they avoid the two extremes we mentioned, of fundamentalism on the one hand and extreme relativism on the other. To review, fundamentalism is the danger of getting caught up in the details of how the spirit expresses itself at any time and place and getting attached to this form of expression. Extreme relativism is the danger of believing that the details don't matter at all. So this this is problematic, because spirit can only express itself through the agency and instrumentality of matter. So the form is important, just like we need a model of the atom to know anything about it. What progressively more complete scientific models do for physical reality, Baha'u'llah says historically revealed religions have done for spiritual reality. From a Baha'i perspective, the requirements of humanity's religious life evolve, just as our scientific and technological pursuits require ever more refined models of physical reality over time. So even though our access to the divine reality is relative and partial, we still have to seek out the form of spiritual truth that provides the widest and most developed expression of universality and oneness. Baha'is are told explicitly, with no room for confusion, that their faith is relative. Baha'u'llah has not given us truth in its absolute form, because not being an absolute being, we cannot receive absolute truth. But at the same time, he has clearly and unequivocally stated a historical principle in religion, that we over time can access closer and closer approximations to absolute truth. So while the phenomenon of religion as we experience it is always relative, the religions brought by the manifestations of God do have a real important connection to an underlying absolute truth. As humanity has matured over centuries and millennia, the messages sent by God have provided an ever closer picture to the underlying reality. This is how the Baha'i position resolves that tension between the fundamentalist position that collapses the form into the essence, and the relativistic position that denies that the form has any meaningful relationship to the essence at all.
1: So this is starting to remind me, um, or spring to mind a quote from the Bible. Uh, Christ says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the wineskins, and the wine will be destroyed and the wineskins. Instead, new wine is poured into new wineskins. So maybe here Christ is comparing the divine essence of religion to wine, and its form, which is a a specific historical religion with its own name, practices, and so on, that's a wineskin. So when God sends the divine essence of religion down again, this is the new wine, and it's not sent back into the old form of the previous religion. It needs a new wineskin, new teachings, practices, and so on. In other words, it needs a new form.
0: I think that makes a lot of sense. Many of the ideas that Baha'u'llah has brought can be found in other religions, but sometimes you have to know what you're looking for.
1: Okay, so if I'm understanding this, for Baha'is, a new form of religion so the Baha'i faith, it isn't the same as adding yet another sectarian religion to advance its own incompatible truth claims to compete with the number of those already existing, just as coming up with a quantum model of the atom isn't setting up some kind of new atom to compete with existing ones.
0: Right, so Shoghi Effendi writes, Far from wishing to add to the number of the religious systems, whose conflicting loyalties have for so many generations disturbed the peace of mankind, this faith is instilling into each of its adherents a new love for, and a genuine appreciation of, the unity underlying the various religions represented within its pale. I think this
1: is great for understanding how all religions can come from God, so it can prevent us from rejecting religions that aren't our own. But I'm still not sure why, if I know this, I I still can't just accept other religions for what they are, whatever their forms are, and simply say, I prefer my own.
0: Well, of course, we are all free to do that. But I think if that's where we leave it, a couple challenges come up. One is that we end up not taking our own religion, or any other religion, entirely seriously. So, for example, one often hears that I accept or respect and believe in all the religions. And this is a beautiful sentiment. But the problem is that it presents its own barrier to actual unity because it waters down all the religions. It makes it impossible to engage with any of the religions on their own terms. The view that all religions are fine and choice between them is essentially a matter of taste ignores the clear testimony of religious scripture itself. In different ways, the holy books of every major faith proclaim that God is fundamentally sending one message, and that this particular expression of that message is true and needed by the people. So the Bible, the Quran, all these books say in some way that they are a message for all people and a message to be investigated and taken seriously. To simply shrug and say that your religion is fine for you and mine is fine for me ignores the clear testimony given in the holy books. The scriptures of the past always warned us not to rely on our own understanding. They were emphatic that we were in need of God, and they warned us that the ways of God are mysterious to human beings. Now, there's another issue with this approach that says, I'm fine with my religion and does not seek to find the unity between them it arguably ignores what religion is intended to do, which is to uncover spiritual reality. Spiritual reality being one, it's not enough to superficially accept that all religions have something to offer and use personal preference as the criteria for deciding what's most true for you.
1: Uh, I got the first point. I'm, I'm not sure I followed this though.
0: Well, let's try to analogize here again to the physical world. Most people today would accept that our physical reality is one. There aren't multiple subjective physical truths out there to be discovered. People who agree with this would accept the scientific enterprise, in which, while different perspectives and models are valuable in that they can shed light on a question about physical reality, those perspectives and models must have a unifying underlying foundation So can we think about how this belief in physical oneness impacts scientists' behavior?
1: Uh, Yeah, I think so. I'm a bit familiar with how this plays out in physics. So you've got quantum mechanics, which describes the universe very well at the level of very small things. And then you have relativity, which describes it really well at the level of really large distances. But the two systems kind of seem to be at odds, uh, from what I understand. I know Einstein pointed this out over a century ago. But on the other hand, just because they haven't got the models to integrate yet, physicists haven't stopped trying. And I guess this is what you're saying. Because the scientists have faith in the ultimate oneness of physical reality, there's this commensurate scientific imperative to reconcile their models of that reality. And I think it's the same thing with the efforts to find a way to describe the four fundamental forces in one unified field theory. And I think both of these projects, I mean, they've led to some advances in physics, but my perception is that if, if the value of the enterprise was measured only in terms of what those advances have been, it probably would have been abandoned long ago. It's, it's been pretty hard going, but I guess the scientists involved know that it has to be done if science itself is going to be a coherent enterprise.
0: Right. So similarly, if there is a spiritual reality in creation, it too must be one reality, So our different religious models must be trying to describe the same underlying reality. Now, maybe we could rest in whatever religious form we find most comfortable while giving lip service to the oneness of religion if we were living in a utopia. But just as scientific advancement is needed to find technological solutions to the problems we face, religious advancement, which is to say moral and spiritual advancement, is indispensable as humanity faces greater crises than it's ever known this advancement must be coherent and must tend towards unity so just saying to each their own with respect to religion keeps our understanding of religion superficial and stops us from looking past differences to what's essential about each religion This, in in turn, it reinforces a lack of willingness and ability of the members of different religions to communicate with one another, and undermines trust between the followers of different religions. So what's needed today is for the followers of different religions to develop a common language, to surface the real and apparent contradictions among their respective beliefs, and to work at establishing a stronger and more universal basis for agreement.
1: Yeah, I think uh, I think that makes sense. It's reminding me a little bit of the story of the three blind men and the elephant. They each find a different part of the elephant and thinks it think it's something different. And I guess, I guess we would say, if they stop there, then they're they're really limited in their understanding and they're limited in how they can use this creature that they found. It's only if they, I guess, uh, compare notes <laughs> that they start to figure out what they what they're really dealing with. Yeah, okay, so, so I think I'm beginning to see why Abdul Baha says that we have to go beyond saying religions are all good. We actually have to look for the light inside them and, and really find the unity. Yeah, I guess one question I have then is where does the Baha'i faith itself fit into all of this? Uh, I know you said it has its own teachings and scripture. Is it mostly focused on having us look at the older religions and seeing how we can unify them?
0: Well, that's certainly a part of it. But to get a picture of the whole scope of the Baha'i Faith, let's talk a bit more directly about an idea that goes hand in hand with the oneness of religion. It's an idea that you'll often find Baha'is referred to as progressive revelation. My sense is that a lot of people are in despair about the world today. It's undeniable that humanity is facing some big challenges. The fact that we're facing such daunting problems in today's world may be frightening, but it also reflects an important truth. Humanity's life on this planet is progressive. Just as adults face more difficult challenges that demand more of them than children do, humanity today is facing more problems that are in some ways to the direct result of our increased capacity. So for instance, when the worst weapon we could design was a sword, we didn't have the capacity to obliterate ourselves through war. And until we developed the scientific and technical knowledge to create large scale industry, we didn't have the capacity to so quickly and radically change our planet's climate. Now, even though humanity makes a lot of mistakes as it moves forward, our species does have an upward trajectory. Baha'u'llah says that humans exist not only to advance their spiritual condition as individuals, but there's also a collective purpose for our existence on this planet. He says that all men have been created to carry forward an ever-advancing civilization. Now, Baha'is believe that to do the actual work involved in this civilization building, the human race needs guidance. Throughout history, this guidance has come in the form of revelation, On one level, this revelation always has some powerful ideas that get embodied in new institutions, social structures and practices, and these help drive civilization forward. But there's also a side of revelation which is a bit more mystical, if you will. Revelation brings us the word of God in every age. Religions have used different language to show how unique and powerful the force at the core of revelation is, but they usually emphasize that it's this spiritual core which we're calling the Word of God here, that's the channel for the divine power that people need to grow their souls, as well as to help society progress.
1: I understand the idea of specific teachings helping drive progress, uh, but the Word of God, that seems kind of abstract. What kind of power does it have?
0: That's a good question. You know. Baha'is believe that the Word of God can't really be understood by us. It's a spiritual phenomenon that gets cast into the form of the specific words the manifestation uses. But because those words are infused with this spiritual force, they aren't like regular words. For instance, Baha'u'llah says that the Word of God is, quote, higher and far superior to that which the senses can perceive. So with that said, We can only try to glimpse the power of the word of God. Let's try another analogy. Think back to what we discussed before about how religious people can come to think that only their religion is true. To see how this happens, let's imagine that you're sitting in a pond surrounded by a desert. You can easily see how the water in your pond might be the most precious thing to you. If someone called from across the desert saying that they have water and you should come see, what would you do?
1: Well, I think... I. I'd I'd be reluctant to go. I know that what I have is true and, and good. And from my perspective, it would just look like desert out there.
0: Right, and this is what religions can seem like to each other. But when a new message comes, the word of God, which is the same water that is in each pond, falls again from the sky. And as it falls, it floods the desert. And where there were once many ponds, now there is one, unified. Upon full of the water of life. So, what we call here the Word of God, and what's sometimes called the Holy Spirit, has the power to birth and nurture an emerging civilization. And it has the power to transcend the differences that, from an unaided human perspective, seem completely insurmountable. In centuries past, the word of God united the tribes of Israel in the time of Moses and brought together Jew and Gentile in the time of Christ. It brought together the warring tribes of Arabia and built a world civilization in the time of Muhammad. These new levels of unity would have been completely unthinkable to the generation living before the new message arrived. But with the help of that new message, this unity became the new normal. Today, that same power, the Word of God, is working through Baha'u'llah's revelation to build a wider, global unity. Um, Maybe you can read this passage from Abdu'l-Baha on this topic.
1: Sure. Today, the greatest need of the world is the animating, unifying presence of the Holy Spirit. Until it becomes effective, penetrating and interpenetrating hearts and spirits, and until perfect, reasoning faith shall be implanted in the minds of men, It will be impossible for the social body to be inspired with security and confidence. Nay, on the contrary, enmity and strife will increase day by day, and the differences and divergences of nations will be woefully augmented. All right, so I think I understand. Um, To reach a new level of real unity, we need the guidance of the new message, which contains this word of God. And Baha'is believe that this message has come in the form of the teachings of Bahá'u'lláh.
0: Yes, these teachings are geared to the practical requirements of unity in this age. They are the map that can lead humanity to unity. It will take a lot of effort from all of us to read that map together and to forge a path to the promised destination. As we take in the vision of Bahá'u'lláh and make the efforts that He calls on us to make, will generate new understandings, new cultures, vocabularies, languages, new beliefs, customs, practices, and even policies and institutions and laws, all of these geared towards the needs and requirements of unity in our day. This guided effort will lead us to a new level of unity that has eluded the human race until now, that we can't reach using our own well-meaning but sporadic and divided efforts, and that we urgently need in order to figure out how to live together on this planet in an age of interconnectedness.
1: Well, on one level, it all sounds very practical, like an army following a general's orders. But from what you've said, I take it that there's also a mystical element operating here?
0: Yes, absolutely. It's not just a matter of intellectually understanding the instructions in Revelation and carrying them out. There's always been a mystical element at the core of God's relationship with us. As Abdu'l-Bahá says, We must strive in order that the power of the Holy Spirit may become effective throughout the world of mankind, that it may confer a new quickening life upon the body politic of the nations and peoples, and that all may be guided to the protection and shelter of the Word of God. Then this human world will become angelic. Earthly darkness pass away and celestial illumination flood the horizons. Human defects be effaced and divine virtues become resplendent. This is possible and real, but only through the power of the Holy Spirit. So I hope it's now clear why, from the Baha'i perspective, the new revelation of Baha'u'llah isn't just another story that competes with previous versions of truth.
1: Yes, I think so. You, You could say that it's an updated model that's intended to push the limits of our understanding in order to help us cope with the emerging complexity of the global challenges we face.
0: Exactly. The House of Justice writes this. Baha'u'llah has not brought into existence a new religion to stand beside the present multiplicity of sectarian organizations. Rather, he has recast the whole conception of religion as the principal force impelling the development of consciousness. And Shoghi Effendi says this in explaining how Baha'u'llah's revelation is related to previous religions. He says that it quote, readily and gratefully recognizes their respective contributions to the gradual unfoldment of one divine revelation, unhesitatingly acknowledges itself to be but one link in the chain of continually progressive revelations. And elsewhere, he says that the fundamental principle enunciated by Baha'u'llah is, quote, that religious truth is not absolute, but relative, that divine revelation is a continuous and progressive process, that all the great religions of the world are divine in origin, that their basic principles are in complete harmony, are but facets of one truth, that their functions are complementary, and that they differ only in the non-essential aspects of their doctrines and represent successive stages in the spiritual evolution of human society. Based on the passages above, Baha'is believe in the progressive unfoldment of one divine revelation, which at each stage expands and deepens the forms of unity that are available to us. So far from representing a departure from the religions and traditional beliefs of the past, the Baha'i revelation can be said to renew and illuminate the essential truths that have animated all great religions and traditions of the past. When we have more time, we could look into this in more detail if you're interested. But maybe to wrap up, we can just note that all past scriptures alluded to this updated form. They all anticipate a new messenger.
1: Yeah, so I'm familiar with some of the uh, messianic expectations in Judaism and Christianity and also Islam. I know that for most Christians throughout history, the idea of the return of Christ was taken very seriously. And that was based on the words of Christ in the Bible. One passage uh, that he says is, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come.
0: And this same idea is reflected in the promises of past religions, that they would be renewed, and that the power found in their messengers and scriptures would return. So, for instance, in Hinduism, Krishna tells Arjuna this in the Bhagavad Gita. Whenever sacred duty decays and chaos prevails, then I create myself, Arjuna, to protect men of virtue and destroy men who do evil, to set the standard of sacred duty. I appear in age after age. And in Buddhism, we read this. I am not the first Buddha who came upon earth, nor shall I be the last. In due time another Buddha will arise in the world, a holy one, a supremely enlightened one, endowed with wisdom and conduct, auspicious, knowing the universe, an incomparable leader of men, a master of angels and mortals. He will reveal to you the same eternal truths which I have taught you, he will preach his religion. Glorious in its origin, glorious at the climax, and glorious at the goal, in spirit and in letter. He will proclaim a religious life, wholly perfect, and pure, such as I now proclaim.
1: Well, this gives me a lot to think about. With all these remarkable promises in the scriptures of the past, I think I should learn more about Baha'u'llah's claim to have fulfilled them.
0: Here's one place where Bahá'u'lláh makes that claim. Verily I say, This is the day in which mankind can behold the face and hear the voice of the Promised One. The call of God hath been raised, and the light of His countenance hath been lifted up upon men. It behoveth every man to blot out the trace of every idle word from the tablet of his heart, and to gaze with an open and unbiased mind on the signs of his revelation, the proofs of his mission, and the tokens of his glory.